I usually plan out sermons, text, topics, titles, and whatnot months in advance with some flexibility. Uh, but I purposely left this Sunday open, sensing that there might be something that the Holy Spirit would want to say through the experience of going on this missions trip to Peru with the Del Riscos. And, and I, that is the case. Um, and I never would have expected to share what I'm going to share about this morning and on this topic. But I'll describe for you the events that led up to what I am calling this morning the touchy-feely sermon. What was during my, I think, my third or fourth opportunity to share from God's Word um, was at one of the maximum security men's prisons in the capital of Peru, in Lima. One of uh, two local churches where I'd been teaching during the weekend had uh, assembled on that Monday, this past Monday, to, to first pray and then secondly, uh, to provide a packet of blankets and toiletries and other helpful goods, which you guys supported and provided a couple weeks ago. So thank you guys for that. I uh, was able to present that to all the prisoners there. And thirdly, to um, basically assemble a party, a celebration and lunch for these men. Uh, it was a great way of sort of doing a, a prison ministry experience. And first we... Um, we sang songs of praise, and it was amazing to see these hardened men, a lot of them very hardened, uh, begin to soften, begin to just smile. And then I got up to share a 15-minute message. And toward the end of the message, I said something that I had jotted down just before getting up. I sensed God putting on my heart, it was a quote from the book of James, chapter 2, where James says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. And as I said this towards the end of my talk to the, to the prisoners there, I, I said, you know, guys, this does not mean poor self-esteem or sort of symbolically poor in love, but actually poor as the world knows poor to be without. People who recognize that they need Jesus in everything are more likely to accept his offer of adoption into God's family. And I said to them, you know, I want to tell you something, something that probably no one has ever told you because I've already heard some of your stories and you feel like injustice has put you here. Or you feel like a flawed system has put you here. Or the wrong circumstances have put you here. But I want to tell you that maybe God has put you here. A loving and good God. So being stripped of everything, you would finally see and recognize your desperate need for a Savior. And at at this, uh, the pastor of the church where I had preached the previous morning, he got up and sort of completed that thought. He said, you know, many of you were specifically stripped of knowing the the Heavenly Father's love early in your life because you had earthly fathers who stripped it from you. They were supposed to be to you an example, a representation of fatherly love. But they never showed it. They never held you when you were young. They never hugged you or patted you on the back or embraced you as you grew up. And we are here, he said, to represent that love to you today. To be the, the embodiment 
of that love today. All this was being translated to me in Spanish. He said, we're going to be a few men up front to be up here to embrace you and to pray for you. And so he stepped forward, as did another gentleman from the ministry. And then finally, he just pointed to me. I had not expected to embrace close to 100 large and formerly grimacing men uh, that morning, um, at least. And, but there I was, um, surrounded by men, okay? Uh, and I'm not going to lie, the first, you know, five, six, seven hugs, I'm serious, probably like 100, and over 30 minutes, 45 minutes, very uncomfortable. I, 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 and, and to be honest with you guys, I was even looking at men's hands. Is there a flash of, like, metal or anything? I was afraid I was going to get shivved. All of a sudden, just for a little bit, I mean, I began to sense, you know, the peace of God, and, and that kind of came in. But there were no guards nearby, but as, as I repeated the words in very broken Spanish, Jesus loved you, and embraced these men, they began just to weep. And when I let go, they would hold on longer. And I believe, guys, sensing the Father's embrace by the Holy Spirit, um, on that day, I found out that nine men decided to receive the offer of adoption of the father's family that morning. We didn't make a big offer to it. We didn't say, now is the day to accept Jesus. Now is the, you must do it. They just decided they want this love in their life. It was a phenomenal reminder to me of how many people are starving to be shown this kind of love, specifically through touch, through an embrace. Now, many of you may have heard, um, referenced, or even read uh, Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, in which he communicates that while everybody needs love, we all experience love differently in a unique sort of language. And there are five of them, he says, and One is quality time. Some of us experience love very profoundly through quality time. Some of us experience love more through acts of service. Someone serving us, doing something for us, showing us kindness. Some of us receive love through receiving gifts. That's the particular way in which we feel love. Someone was thoughtful of us. Fourthly, words of affirmation. Someone goes out of their way to encourage us, very specifically. And finally, physical touch. I've seen many of you guys build relationships through quality time with others. Many of you, especially through our community groups and time outside of, of group time. I've witnessed many of you guys serve in and outside of the body of Christ, very faithfully and sacrificially, and I've even been the recipient of that kind of service, me and my family. Many of you guys have, are blessed, very blessed with the gift of giving. And I've seen you be generous to those in need. In fact, in many ways, I feel like we're a church that excels at that. I'm grateful for that. And as for words of affirmation, I've been laying them on you for the last 30 seconds. All right, I hope you've heard them. However, then there's physical touch. And as I thought about it this last week, I just had time to reflect I think that's a different matter for us. I think as a church, that's an area for growth for us. 
a warm, a loving, a physical touch, a holy touch, and offering that regularly to one another as a church family. So I talked this morning first about what the Bible has to say about loving people through touch. Second, we're going to talk about the modern danger the touch presents, and thirdly, practical wisdom for how to move forward in a way that bridges the two. The Bible says it, but we know it's a modern danger, physical touch. How do we bridge the gap and move forward? So first of all, again, biblical touch, dangerous touch, and a touching way forward. I've never heard a sermon on this, and I was uncomfortable thinking about it, but here we go. Number one, biblical touch. Friends, we are designed for touch. First of all, neurologically, God has designed us for touch. There are numerous studies chronicling this, and I had a bunch of them written down, but only a time for probably the most famous one you've heard before, that, that babies who are held and hugged and kissed develop a healthier emotional life than those left for long periods without being touched. Uh, Samuel Coleridge, it's a name you may have heard before, Samuel Coleridge. You may have heard of a 19th century poet. Name may be familiar from like junior or senior year, you know, English literature or something like that. Um, He was significantly affected in his life and in his poetry by his three-year-old waking up one night, middle of the night, calling out to his mom, touch me, only touch me with your hand. He said it was the most bizarre thing for a three-year-old to articulate in the middle of the night. Astonished by the request, the mom walked in and said, okay, why? The boy said, I'm not here. Touch me, mother, that I may be here. See, there was a sense in which he woke up. He didn't know where he was or who he was. But when we're touched, there's a feeling that I am someone. I mean something. I have significance. We're designed that way. We're designed of the stuff to be touched. Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. Many people think God created man so that there would be another being free to love him, free to love God. It wouldn't just robotically love God. But actually, angels proved that they were free to love long before us, didn't they? Hence, the temptation of man by a fallen angel, an angel who had rebelled. The chief difference between human beings and angels is a difference of matter. Angels are spirits. We're told time and again in Scripture. We, however, are physical, tactile, through and through. That is how God has created us in His image. And the Bible talks about three main ways to touch, to love through touch. There's, number one, the laying out of hands, also uh, an embrace, a hug, and also, of course, the holy kiss. First, the laying out of hands, when you just Put your hand on someone's shoulder or on their back, typically on their arm. It's first of all used to set someone apart to lead. To set someone apart that God has called to lead his people in some way. So Deuteronomy 34.9, Joshua, the son of Nun, full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him so that the people of Israel obeyed him, just as they obeyed Moses. Or Acts, chapter 6, 5 and 6. They chose Stephen, 
and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmaeus. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. They also lay hands on a person, too, we're told in Scripture, to impart a spiritual gift. To pray for someone to be gifted, they might have a gift to serve the body of Christ. 1 Timothy 4, 13 and 14, Paul says to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Third way we see experiencing uh, laying on of hands in Scripture is for physical healing. Acts 9, 17 through 18. So Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying his hands on Paul, was then Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came and sent me so you might regain your sight. Paul was blind at the time, physically ailed with blindness. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Regain your sight. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Paul learns from this, and he passes this on. We see in Acts 28, 8 and 9. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him, and he prayed, and he put his hands on him, and he healed him. When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came forward, presumably to have hands laid on them and to be healed. So, first of all, we see touch through the laying on of hands. We also see it in Scripture through a warm embrace. There are many examples of this in Scripture. I'm going to mention one to which we'll later return. It's Paul's last time with these elders, these group of leaders, these brothers with whom he spent three years ministering to the church of Ephesus. And he's going to have to leave them. And as he does, they're on the shore. He's about to enter this ship. And this is what happens there was much weeping on the part of all, Acts 20, 37, 38. Much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul, and they kissed him. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that he would not see their face again, or they his. Embracing. What a powerful expression of the love of God. Now, it's interesting, there's, you'll see a lot of laying on of hands and embracing after the Gospels, which is interesting. And there's this moment in John's account of the resurrection that can help us with this. Mary realizes at the resurrection, she walks into the tomb and she realizes, wait a minute, this is not a gardener who's taken Jesus' body. It's the rabbi, it's Rabboni, it's the teacher himself. And she goes to him, and presumably here we can see from the context, goes to Jesus and embraces him, holds him. And Jesus says to her, John 20, 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, he's risen from the dead, but he has not gone up into heaven. I ever wonder why he says this. Don't cling to me, woman. I haven't ascended to the Father. It sounds harsh. It doesn't always has for me. But I think what he's doing here is he's preparing Mary for after he's gone. Not physically there. He's preparing her for church life. 
He has done Jesus lots of touching as he is blessed and he is healed and he is embraced. He is, Jesus, the arm of God. He is the hand of God. Come to rescue, come to heal, come to bless and to touch and to show the love of the Father. After he has ascended, the church, the body of Christ, represents Jesus here on earth, takes on that role. They are to touch lovingly. They are to be relied upon for physical love, for warmth, for reassurance as the arms and the hands of Jesus himself. What a privilege. Jesus has prepared us just for that. But back to my point here. Thirdly, you see here, another way you see touch in Scripture is the famous or infamous holy kiss. And who has ever mentioned a holy kiss, you know, as not part of some lame Christian joke, right? I never heard anyone actually teach on the holy kiss, certainly not practice it uh, in front of other people. Uh, I will not illustrate it for you this morning. (laughs) Paul suggests it as a greeting from himself to the church at the end of the letters uh, to, to the Roman church at the end of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and at the end of 1st Thessalonians. Show my love by greeting the church there with a holy kiss. Honestly, I respect the holy kiss even now. While it's really become more of a Euro or a Latino kiss in modern respective cultures, and I will leave your continued use of the holy kiss to your discretion this morning. However, i got to say, it has always caused first-time trouble for me. First of all, experiencing nothing of it except for usually first time or formal occasions. I often go in for the arm hug. If you go in for the arm hug, you try to slide your head to the left. But if the other person is going for the kiss while you're going to the side, it turns in to the dreaded neck kiss. All right? The most awkward kiss possible when greeting someone you first met is a neck kiss which I have experienced no less than six times since moving to Grand Cayman. A neck kiss. It's like, what do you do after that? You're just like, well, yeah, good to meet you as well. I'm going to walk away and get a beverage now. (laughs) Now, back to our point here, though. The fact that Paul calls it, though, a holy kiss as a form of legitimate, loving, physical church greeting is helpful that it's holy Because he's not saying it's a suggestive kiss. It's not a sign of further interest kiss. But it's set apart to communicate a set apart love. A holy, which literally means set apart kiss, is meant to indicate a set apart warmth, a set apart love. When it comes to touch, now obviously it's the the same gender, same age is okay. Almost always. Same gender, same age. It can be awkward at worst, but usually it's okay. It's everything else that gets a little bit weird, dicey, that can give the wrong idea and even be dangerous. And there's one scripture that has actually assisted me greatly, and so I've memorized Jude 23, where it said, Jude says, to others show mercy mixed with fear. And I think that's right when it comes to holy touch, Right? You want to show mercy, show love, mixed with a healthy amount of fear, of respect. And that's that where we'll go forward now. Second point here this morning, we've seen a biblical touch, dangerous touch. We've seen, studying the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark over the last months, Jesus employed touch when actually he didn't have to. He didn't have to. He wasn't saving someone from a burning building or from a, from a car that was about to explode. He didn't have, to, didn't have to touch them, but he decided to. 
Mark chapter 7, verse 22 through 23, we've looked at this before. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. All right, that's Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 8, not too long later, he took a blind man by the hand. He led him, having taken him by the hand physically, led him out of the village. And when he had spit on the blind man's eyes, he laid his hands on him. Again, the warmth of a physical touch. Finally, Mark chapter 10, verse 15 through 16. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took the children nearby there in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, we, what will we say now, friends, if, if Jesus were our physical pastor here today? And that would be great if Jesus was our pastor. Give me, like, I'd be the first to take a job in sales, all right? Go somewhere else. But if, what would we say if Jesus was now our physical pastor, and we watched him minister to people like this? What do we, we'd probably look at him and say, look, uh, Jesus, you're doing a great job. Great preaching, uh, tons of love, like this message is radical, but you probably shouldn't have done those things. Like, first two, two were kind of weird and creepy, all right? Just like putting your hands in someone's ears before you pray for them, shouting a word, you know, and then spitting on your hands. Then, you know, we kind of tell you not to do that, and then you come back, you spit again on your hands, privately with a blind man, and, you know, touch his eyes. Then, finally, you know, going back into kids' ministry, touching kids you haven't met yet, blessing them, and, you know, haven't got the parental's consent form yet, you know, putting them on your lap, blessing them, just saying. And yet, this is the age we live in, right? And so, Ecclesiastes 3, that famous passage, Ecclesiastes verse 5, the Bible does say there is a time to embrace. There is a time to physically and warmly touch, but there is also a time to refrain from embracing. Touch can be dangerous because it has been so perverted. To hurt others physically. To touch intimately someone else's spouse. To touch intimately someone who is unwilling to be touched. To touch someone intimately of the same gender or much younger or as a purchased possession even, are perversions of a good gift that has been provoked and perpetuated by the evil triumphant of the sinful nature, Satan, the world. Taking this good gift of a warm expression of God's holy and set-apart love and perverted it for evil. This is the 21st century world we live in, and and to be blunt, it is a problem even here on this island. Perverted touch. And this may have even been an issue in your history, and I recognize that this morning. And I want to pray, even now, and, and not that you shouldn't seek further help or counseling or prayer, but even now, Lord, I just pray for people in here this morning, for friends in here who have experienced an unholy, a perverted touch in their life, They've been damaged by that, hurt by that. Please, by your Holy Spirit, bring healing and remind them that that is not the Father's love for them. 
And because of this, friends, because of this unholy use of touch, we, we need to establish certain safeguards. So, for instance, for me, I, I don't hug uh, kids of, whose parents I don't know. I just don't do it. I don't hug women who I know are, are vulnerable due to some kind of relational difficulty or trauma. I don't hug kids in middle school or high school as they get older unless I know them and, and their parents like super well. When I hug a child whose parents I do know or a member of the opposite gender, I, I don't do a side hug. They'll like shuffle. You know, because I, I do feel like, honestly, in my experience, like it's a bit cold, just my feeling on this. It lacks a little warmth, but I do execute a one-arm hug. In all seriousness, I, I do do a one-arm hug because it communicates this is not going to last too long. The person's uncomfortable. And, and there's honestly less body contact with a one-arm hug. So that's what I do when you use that. But it's also important to just have alternatives, clear alternatives, since there is a time not to embrace a shoulder squeeze to the same gender, someone of the same gender, at a humorous moment, right? Something's funny, give a shoulder squeeze. At a reflective moment. Remember that time we used to gather for breakfast, studying God's Word? These are on the, on the way out when saying goodbye to someone. That can often be better and communicate the same thing as a hug. Eye contact and a broad smile, especially when someone first enters the room, that can be better and more appropriate, frankly, than going up to them and giving a big bear hug. Or getting down to a child's level, right? Getting down to their level and giving them a high five can show, physically demonstrate, still physically demonstrate love to them in a way that giving them a hug or kind of giving them the stomach, that kind of thing, wouldn't really do or be appropriate. So it's important for safeguards and wisdom because we live in a world that has perverted touch. Satan has perverted touch. Sin has perverted touch. Having said this, there's also a time to embrace and to state or act otherwise. To just stay away, I think, would be preventing an important expression of the love of Christ as his representatives here on earth. To just say, okay, then don't touch, stay away. We'll be missing an opportunity to communicate his love as his representatives here on earth. So I think we should. It's an expression that so many people are starving to experience. You guys might be familiar with uh, Pastor Rick Warren. He wrote Purpose Driven Life, a pastor of Saddleback Church in California. He said this, I once heard him say, you know, at Saddleback, we believe in a high-touch ministry. We give lots of hugs and pats on the back. So many individuals live by themselves and have told me the only loving physical contact they ever get is on a Sunday morning. Isn't that amazing? So, accordingly... What is a touching way forward? And these won't be commands, friends, but hopefully wisdom rooted in Scripture. How can we bridge the gap between biblical touch is is valid, not only valid, but encouraged in Scripture to show love, but also knowing that it's dangerous in our 21st century world. What's a way forward? First, be discriminate yet indiscriminate. All right, first, be discriminate yet indiscriminate. Be discriminate regarding your own situation. This is a matter of the heart, friends. You've got to be brutally honest with yourself. If you've recently experienced any kind of indulgence in lust or sexual impurity of some kind, while you're forgiven as you confessed and you trust Jesus, then likewise, it is wise to hold off for a time from physical displays of uh, love, of affection, 
to the opposite gender. If you know, for instance, the night before, you know, sometime this week, it has been a struggle for you, hands off. I would say hands off. Or, if you've experienced a season of excessive longing for a mate, you have just been yearning, and you're, like, you're single, you want, to, you want to be married so badly, I understand it's not necessarily the best time to engage in physical touch with the opposite gender. Just know, no, hold off. Find my contentment back in Jesus. Put my worth there. Just so you don't get the wrong idea when you do have an embrace with someone. And you start to think later, yeah, that may have meant something. So be discriminate regarding your own situation, but also be indiscriminate. Here's what I mean by this. Sharing a holy love means you share it without respect to your judgment of another's beauty. I'm going to be real honest about hearts, the human heart here, friends. Really honest. The reality is for men and women alike, we are conditioned to be visually attracted to certain kinds of beauty. And so you'll see a beautiful person, whether you're male or female, and, and you'll go, you'll be more maybe even tempted or attracted, wanting to show physical affection to them. Maybe this needs to start as a matter of discipline. Perhaps you need to make yourself hug more than one person at a time. That while you're naturally drawn to this person to hug them, you hug another person as well. Be indiscriminate. Uh, one of C.S. Lewis's amazing, amazing shorter works is his book, The Four Loves. I'd recommend it highly. Good summer reading. He, he examines the four types of love using the Greek language. There's philea, which is friendship, eros between um, lovers, uh, agape, which is, he describes as charity or self-giving love. And there's storge, which is affection, which is the kind of thing I'm talking about this morning. Affection, he says, is the least discriminate of all the loves. He says, it is affection that teaches us first to notice, then to endure, then to smile at, then to enjoy, finally to appreciate the people who happen to be there. Made for us, thank God, no. They are themselves odder than you could have believed and worth far more than you could have guessed. Be indiscriminate. Also, here's another piece of wisdom, I think. Reach out enough to know when to stop. Reach out enough to know when to stop. We have initiating, pursuing God who reaches out to us even when we reject Him. The Bible says, 1 John 4, 9, we love because He first, first, Loved us. He initiated love towards us. Don't give up after one time of showing love through physical contact. If you notice a person frees up when hugging them or putting your hand on their shoulder, it's very possible they just weren't expecting it or they're not accustomed to it. Give it some time, then try again. If you get the same reaction again, then it's wise to stop. Right? It's a sign of discomfort and maybe a past bad experience. Try enough to know when to stop. Here's a third piece of wisdom. Touch with timeliness during crisis and failure. First, during crisis. I referenced uh, before the example from Acts. Paul leaving his elders, whom he's, he's labored alongside for three years. And he leaves, and he's been told through a prophetic word, you're going to go, and you're going to go to jail, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem. And they're sad for him. It's a time of crisis. So they embrace him. A loss needs embracing. But also, it's appropriate to embrace during failure. 
during a time of moral failure. Often best addressed through an unconditional, I accept you as you are, embrace. One of the greatest stories of grace, of unqualified, unmerited acceptance in the Bible, comes in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read to you one verse. The prodigal son arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he started to speak to the son about forgiveness, how to confess, how to repent and to trust in Jesus. And they opened the scriptures together. That's not the story. Let me try again here. Uh, The prodigal son arose and he came to the father, but while while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion. So he asked the stable boy to go get the steed so he and the boy could go for a ride together. Let's talk about it. Spend some quality time with one another. That's not it either. I'm sorry. This could be it here. The prodigal son arose and he came to his father. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Friends, the, the embrace and the look of love It's the right way in these situations. It's an, I accept you as you are, when neither you nor I can handle words or extra time together or extra deeds together. Which makes sense, right? When you, unfortunately, catch a friend or encounter a friend in in moral failure, it's hard to give words, right? Because you don't want to condone what's happened. You don't want to over-relate to the person. Oh, I struggle with that also. It doesn't always work. But at the same time, they can't hear you lecture to them from the Bible. When someone is caught in sin, neither can you start to spend quality time with them. Usually it's awkward in that moment. But you can't embrace them. Show them the unqualified, unmerited love of Jesus. In fact, I am so proud. Over the last four and a half years, twice I've experienced or heard of persons in Sunrise expressing that kind of embrace. Uh, both times, one Christian happened to approach the, another drunk. And both times, I'm proud to say the response was gracious. As a drunk person turned away in shame, the sober person demanded they turn around for a hug, for an embrace. And that's the way to respond. Don't, don't walk away in shame. Let me, let, me, let me love you. Let me welcome you. Finally, let me say this. You can't totally remove the risk of a loving touch. You can embrace a person believing as you do that, that it, it is the, like the embrace of Jesus, but it still might embarrass you. They might be embarrassed. The person might scoff. They might say a word to you, humiliate you. They might think you'd be a creep, to be a, a little bit of a floozy, or somehow interested. There's no way to totally, totally get rid of that risk. Consider even the laying on of hands. It is by nature very risky. We believe God is setting this person apart to lead his people, right? So that as the body of Christ, we are the hand that shows that. We believe that God is conferring a gift or is willing to heal. So we touch, representing the touch of Jesus himself. That this is God setting this person apart or is gifting this person or is healing this person. Yet people fail. They show themselves not to be good leaders. People don't get the gift. He or she is not healed. There's always risk involved. I want to share with you one last story, testimony I heard while in Peru. I got to know a family there who had three grown daughters. On the last day 
I was there in Peru. Um, one of the daughters share with me, interestingly, not her testimony, but her family's testimony of trusting Jesus. It's interesting because people usually share with me their personal testimony, their individual testimony, but she was insistent that for her, her salvation story was a family testimony. It's a wealthy family she grew up in, but unhappy. There are all kinds of fights, especially between the parents and the eldest daughter. The daughter who was sharing this, the youngest daughter, recalls that she would go into her room and the middle daughter would join her and they would just spend time together because there was always so much fighting. And she remembers um, believing in God, almost like an incomplete psalm. You know, you go back in the psalms and you read about a person believing in God, but they're kind of mad at God or they're complaining, God, why aren't you with me? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you good? And that was her life. She believed that God was real, but she didn't think he was good. Why would you give me this family? Put me in this situation was her cry. It wasn't too long after they discovered her eldest daughter, eldest daughter of the family, had bulimia. And then actually things got even worse, if it's possible. They tried to help her and get her help. They tried to not leave her alone. Years went by, though. Things didn't change. And the woman, um, thankfully, was visited from a woman who uh, was visiting the church who is in counseling ministry and healing ministry and recovery ministry. She met with a young woman, and she went up into the States for this uh, prolonged counseling session. First, it didn't take. Things were difficult. She came back, was still struggling with the eating disorder. She went back, and God used the time to heal her. And at her graduation, she expressed something to her parents that she had discovered as Jesus began to heal her. And that was that she was inappropriately touched at a young age by her father's employee. And it becomes so buried in her subconscious, first out of fear and then out of shame. And as an adult, it was the first time she could share this with her parents. And as she was healed, she found the embrace of Jesus and then the embrace of her physical family. It was then that the whole family really began to trust in Jesus. It's amazing. Years later, the younger daughter who was sharing this went to university in the States. And while there, she believes one of her greatest contributions to the ministry there was teaching her fellow classmates and friends how to hug. Yes, including members of the opposite gender. In fact, she said there was two mentor figures in her life who didn't know how to hug, and, and they learned how to hug for the first time, how to embrace, how to show that kind of love in that kind of way. And I asked her, wasn't that excruciating? Even darn near impossible, given your family's testimony, that you know, the wicked way in which touch damaged and almost destroyed your family? I think that would be like the one love language you, you wouldn't want to communicate. She said the most amazing things. She said, you know, but isn't that real faith? Isn't that real faith? Faith that because God is truly healed, you can step out and do what's riskiest for you. I said, yeah, that's awesome. Physical touch, warm embrace, meaningful hand on the shoulder, that might see the riskiest thing for you, but isn't that real faith? Real faith isn't doing only what makes sense given your past. It requires some R-I-S-K. I pray that Sunrise would be a church that embraces because Jesus has first embraced us. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful that you have first loved us. You've initiated, you have loved, you've come to us in the flesh. 
And now you call for us to love in the flesh. Father, that's not easy to do. There's all kinds of dangers, temptations, sin, Satan surrounding us at all times. It's a risk. We've learned how to take the risk, Lord. We've learned some practical wisdom, how to move forward. But we need faith to do it, which is spelled R-I-S-K. Help us be a church willing to love with warmth, with your Holy Spirit in that kind of way. In Jesus' name, amen.